Welcome to Kick Your Butts, a show where excuses, limits, and boundaries go to die. Where moving through everything that's holding you back is the key to stepping onto your infinite path and achieving the success you deserve in life, business, and relationships. It's time to take those butts and kick them into oblivion. Now, here's your host, Susan Desenzi. Welcome back to another edition of Kick Your Butts, where we obliterate your boundaries, your excuses, and your limitations. I am super excited to have a very special guest in the house today with me. I always say that every time I have a guest on that they're special. And you know what? The truth is that they are. And you know why? They bring an amazing wealth of experience and personal, you know, triumph and things that they've been through to the table. And I just am always excited to have them here to share in that. So before I get into who this person is, and as I do every time, I'm a little mysterious with whether it's a male or female and who this person is, I want to share with you that this person has overcome some amazing, in-depth, very challenging things. And so I am honored to have Dr. Will Horton in the house today who is a leading expert in the treatment of addictions using the most cutting-edge technology available. Now, that's really cool to me because I have been in the addiction world for my entire career, and I have watched kind of the traditional ways that we have addressed addictions and addiction behaviors. So to hear of cutting-edge technology is just super exciting. Now, he is the author of The Alcohol and Addiction Solution and Ultimate Fat Loss for You. I think as we're coming into January here, we probably all need that. And it has changed the way people really look at all addictions. He also has recently released Habits for Success, which reveals little-known facts about how your brain actually makes habits. I think that's pretty super cool and pretty important. And it is considered a must-read in the area of personal change. He is leading the way in the helping of people with internet and social media addictions, which I know has just exploded over the years, especially as the internet and social media has become so much more prominent in so many people's lives. And he has really used these techniques to overcome an addiction himself, which sadly took away his acting career. And his story is, you know, it's so inspiring and it's so uplifting that I am sure you are going to hear just such a great example today of how it can be done across any addiction. So welcome, 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 Dr. Will Horton. So glad to have you here. Glad to be here. I'm always think it's a, a blessing to get to share some of some of the information I've been lucky enough to stumble across. Right? I know. And and that's the thing that we can feel like we just stumbled across it. But the truth is, is it's beneficial for us. And then we realize how beneficial it is for everybody else that we come across over time. So I would love to know kind of what got you into this work. Well, it was, it, it, I've always been fascinated with, you know, how your mind works and everything. Everybody says that. Yeah. In fact, it was in high school. I got a book called Hypnosis for Change. It's still in print, by the way. And I got it, thought it was cool. And I remember reading 
a little hypnosis script out of it and hypnotizing somebody, right? Really? It, uh, yes. It scared the shit out of me, to tell you the <laughs> truth, because uh, it worked, right? Yeah. Now, I didn't really do anything with it. I played sports in high school, you know, and was basically a drunken athlete, to tell you the truth. But I did make some self-hypnosis tapes. And that was even before there were cassette tapes, not to date myself, but they were the little reel-to-reel, then I had cassettes. And I, I, and I thought it was pretty cool. It kind of got put on the back burner, like I said, you know, with sports and high school. And then right after high school, I joined the Army uh, to become a pilot. And basically, my addiction took that away. I got in trouble. Left, you know, I entered... My, my track record kind of was I would enter hot. People would be excited. Yes, I was, I was going to do this. You know, it was either going to go become a helicopter pilot. And I was also in a waiting list to go to West Point. Those are pretty cool things. And I ended up getting in trouble drinking. And so me and the United States Army split after a few years. I got an honorable discharge. So it took away that career. So here's what I did. Let me tell you, I think this is funny. I decided I wanted to be an actor. I always liked it. And I decided I want to be a stage actor. And the reason I think it's kind of funny, I'd never seen a play in my life. Wow. <laughs> so what, so wait, let that, let's back up for a second. So then why do you think that was something that really attracted you? Like, what was it about that? I don't know. It was just like, uh, I got to help backstage at a USO thing while I was in the army ah. and, and it was kind of fun and the people were cool. And, you know, like everybody, we love movies. Sure. And I always thought the idea of theater was cool, but I'd never really done it. So I decided I want to be this actor. Right. And so I ended up getting accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is uh, kind of like the Harvard of the acting world. And, you know, that sounds really impressive, but to be honest with you, I was kind of like an affirmative action baby because they had some slots open for veterans. This was right after Nam was winding down. And so again, I started hot. I was doing well. You know, I kept my nose clean, kind of like I did the first year or so in the army. And then my addiction took that away. Right. And so, you know, and I mean, uh, kind of broke my heart, uh, but I couldn't quit drinking. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I ended up going through the Veterans Administration treatment. And then uh, once it all started to make sense, I started to get my life back together, right? And then once I figured out how it worked, I kind of got back into the hypnosis and the NLP. And that's kind of a, a brief synopsis of my, of my story, if you will. Got it. Wow. You know, so you lost two careers that were important to you, you know, being in the army. And were you planning on making the army if you had become a helicopter pilot or had gone to West Point? Were you planning that you were aware of back then to become, you know, kind of a career army man? Probably. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're a, if you're a helicopter pilot, it's kind of a great job in the army, especially all you do is fly helicopters. Sure. Right. Sure. And of course, if you go to West Point, you become what they call a ring knocker. And, you know, you, you're pretty much you have to be a real screw up if you go to West Point and get thrown out of the army. They don't. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And same with the acting. I was doing well and uh, didn't, you know, you know, because it's kind of interesting with the acting because a lot of people that aren't around it would, you know, you always hear about these big partiers, especially when I was getting started. You had the Jim Belushi's and the big partiers in the 70s and early 80s. But that's really not how it works. You know, and if I hadn't lost that career, I think if I had gotten a really big break, I probably would be dead. Why do you say that? Because the way I drank and, and partied, I, I think it would have killed me. You just would have like dove even deeper into it. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like you're old enough to remember like John Belushi. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like that. so sad you know, when he died. Yeah. Or, or Chris Farley. If suddenly you're surrounded, and we see it with almost happened to uh, Robert Downey Jr. Where, you know, and he says now, and what the few times he talks about it is never surround yourself with people that praise you. <laughs> You know, because nobody would say no to these people. And so, you know, you end up overdosing. And so, in a way, it was a blessing losing those things, the way I look at it now. Sure. And it's, you know, it's always easy in hindsight to look back on these things that we've experienced that we deem negative at the time and say, oh, that was a gift and that was a blessing. But at the time, it surely didn't feel that way. So, when you lost your acting career, was it that you weren't being you know, cast for jobs? Was it that you were being cast for jobs and showing up drunk and they would kind of like say, sorry, you got to go. This isn't going to work out. Like, how did that kind of fall apart for you? Basically, I would get, uh, uh, I remember I had several like callback interviews and this is when I was in LA. And one was just literally show up. Basically, it was for a TV show. Uh, I think the TV show was called Waverly Wonders, you know, and playing a high school kid. I was in my early 20s. But remember, still, they, they take 30-year-olds and say, right. yeah, it's a high school senior. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I got drunk and missed it. Oh. You know, I forgot about it. I was partying and, you know, slept, uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, and so I, I, I would miss auditions, not show up. And probably I was sabotaging because probably underneath it all, I was terrified. Sure, sure. You know, was I good enough? Could I do it? Right. That is such a common thing that we all feel, or most of us feel, in various different arenas in our life, whether you're an entrepreneur, or you're a coach, or you're a speaker, or you're an author, or God, I don't you know, an actor, or I don't know, a construction guy, right? You know, like it doesn't really matter if we've never done something before, or if it takes us to a new height that we've never experienced before, a level of success or a level of kind of public notoriety or kind of being out there and being seen for many people, that can be so incredibly terrifying that yes, we absolutely sabotage. Do you think you recognize that then? No, no, it was always someone else's fault. Uh-huh. You know, you know, they forgot to call and remind me, you know, it's not their job, you know whatever. It was always someone else's fault. You know, I, I, I never put the blame on myself or my addiction. Yeah. You know. So then in losing the acting career that you were really, sounds like you were very passionate about it. And I, and I say that because Dr. Will has an audition today. He told me right before we went live that he actually was cast in a in a film called Killer Keg. So watch out for that, everybody. I don't know when it'll be out. But let's guess that in the film industry, in the, in the entertainment world, my guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Will, but probably within the year, we would probably see it out, you think? Yes, probably by summer. Yeah, they're shooting next month, a short shooting schedule. And, you know, uh, it, it's kind of fascinating. I've been blessed to be on a couple of films since I sobered up. It's like a play. You know, I get to see the whole process. And so, you know, filming, it's one thing. Putting the movie together is a whole totally different animal. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, because, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So watch out, everybody, for Killer Keg, and you will see Dr. Will Horton in there. How exciting. So you've kind of gotten back into it now, and we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. So you lost that career, and then what kind of was the catalyst that you believe was the thing that made you say, 
shit, I need to get some actual help now. Well, what what happened was, um, you know, I, I ended up back where I grew up, which is uh, Gary, Indiana area, the, right outside Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll go back there and get a job because back then you had the steel mills and the auto plant. You could always get a really good paying job. I said, I'll, I'll come back, I'll get some money, and then I'll either go back to New, go to New York or go back to L.A. And I took a job working at a steel mill. And then I'm standing there. I called off work because I had a hangover. So it was 730 in the morning. And I was in a bar with all the other social drinkers, right? As I would call it, right? And I'm, and I'm looking around and there's guys probably, you know, like I said, I was probably 23, 24 at the time. And I'm looking around, there's guys, you know, uh, middle-aged and above. Now, most of those guys work midnights in the, in the auto plant or the, or the refinery. So they're, you know, they just got off work, but it's seven thirty in the morning. I got up, didn't feel good. So I was at the bar and with, like I say, the social drinkers. But I remember looking around the bar thinking, Jesus, look at all these fucking losers. Wow. Right? And then I looked in the mirror and go, and it just dawned on me. That's my future. Wow. You know, sitting there drinking at life. I call it drinking about it. I'm drinking about it. You know, it's not even thinking about it. And I'm, I'm like, I, I said, so I wasn't going to drink. So I left the bar, went home. And I, I, I just, I couldn't do it. By, by noon, I was shaking so bad I needed a drink. And so that's how I ended up reaching out for some help. And because I was a veteran, they, they, they got me into the VA and I went through VA treatment. Nice. So then how long after that was it that you kind of knew this was a path for you to follow and, and really start helping other people well, it, it, it was kind of cool because, okay, I got out of the, 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 the VA and I always skip this little part. I got married in there, <laughs> the, my, my, my first wife. And so I got out of the treatment and I was sober about a year and a half. My daughter was born. I was, uh, my wife was a nurse. She worked midnights. I would take care of the kid. I was going to school in the day. I was doing pretty well. And then active in the 12-step program, mm -hmm. uh, doing some other things. And then my wife and I got a divorce, didn't have anything to do with drinking. And my ex-wife, wonderful lady, wish her the best. We just, we, we shouldn't be married to each other. Let me just put it that way, yeah. right? And so we got, you know, we split up and I ended up drinking again, right? Oh. And then for the next year and a half, I was, I was kid around for a while. I thought my name was Welcome Back Bill. And, you know, and then I stumbled across someone who did some, what I would call now NLP and hypnosis. And then suddenly everything makes sense. The 12-step program I was involved in, the therapy they put me in, all this other stuff. And I remember the hypnosis from high school. I said, this is what works. And then my life radically started to change. It was literally a 180 or, a, or at least a 90 degree, and my life took off. And so then I started doing volunteer work at rehabs. And back then they had detox centers. And I, I started doing that. And one thing led to another. I studied hypnosis, NLP, and because I had the veteran stuff going on, I went back to school and got my master's and my doctorate in psychology. Cool. And so that's how, that's when it became a passion. I never set out to do this. It never was anything I thought I was going to do. It was like, it was just, suddenly I'm doing it. It's one of those, again, where maybe the past was really indicative of our future path. And we didn't know it. We were walking, you know, don't they say that we teach or I prefer to say we teach what we most want and need to experience. You know how we always say you teach what you most need to learn. I'm not a big fan of the learn because I believe inherently as a soul, as a, as a divine being, we already have those answers. 
but we're in the physical form to experience, right? So we teach then what we most need to learn, experience, so that we can then maybe share that with others. And that's part of the deeper purpose. I, I want to go back for just a second. For those of you who don't really know what NLP is, it's Neural Linguistic Programming. That's what NLP stands for. And I would love, Dr. Will, if you could share a little bit about what NLP is and how it ties in with the hypnosis and your work in addictions, because I think it's fascinating. Well, NLP, like you say, stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, and it, it, it uses the same kind of mechanisms that hypnosis uses without formal trance. Best example I usually tell people is I give, I give this example. If you think about somebody you really like, a buddy, a pal, a friend. So if you just need, you can do it eyes open, eyes closed. If you imagine this person you really like, right? And not a spouse or a lover, just somebody you really like. And if you put their image in your mind, it'll take some kind of spatial arrangement. Maybe it's right in front, maybe it's to the left, but like there they are. Great. Now, if you kind of clear your mind, now think about somebody you don't like. They're a pain. They're, Wah. you just don't like, <laughs> right? And let them pop in your mind. They'll take a different spot. It's just the way your brain works, uh -huh. right? So now, but if in your mind, if you close your eyes and you try to take that person you dislike and move them to the spot of the person you like, what does your brain say? No. No, it usually clicks. Yeah, open your eyes. It, it usually clicks back or goes this way. Yeah. That's a, that's a quick thing to show you. Your brain operates simply. The operating, and really the thing that I love about this, even though I am a clinical psychologist trained in clinical psychotherapy, the reason I like hypnosis and NLP is it works with the operating system. Yes. It's very simple, right? Your consciousness is all screwed up, but the operating system is very simple. But now if we took that person you dislike and, and, and I had you do a couple little things and kept them in that space of the person you like, you would start liking them. Right. And then your consciousness would kick in and you would justify it. And, and it also, the cool thing, it, a lot of this, the, the more I get into it, the more I realize some of the things that we've just known there's a reason for it. It's like, it's why our parents told us, and we still tell our kids, watch out who you hang out with. Right. Right. So if, a, if there's a known troublemaker and you're hanging out with a troublemaker and I meet you, naturally, you're a troublemaker. Right. And we all have that kind of experience. And so what NLP does is uses those processes. We don't get into logic. It's just like we start playing with the processes and then the change happens from the inside out. Yes. Right? Yes. And it, it could be another example I always tell about NLP in, in a way there's a process and it mirrors. Many of us have heard this little saying that if you ever want to never eat food that you really like, just take a job working where they make it. Right. 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 And within a couple of weeks, you'll never, I mean, I was the only guy in the army that didn't eat pizza when I went through basics and all my training. Why? Because my last year of high school, I worked in a pizza place. Wow. See, that's so funny. I did too. I'm not in high school, but I worked in a pizza place and I still love pizza. So what does that say? Well, it just, it took me, a, I love pizza now, but it took when I- Oh, when I, back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there was a period. It's like, no, nah, I'll pass. Cause I remember honestly picking pizza up off the floor, you know. We were, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. as long as it, as long as it landed with the cheese up, baby, it was still going <laughs> in the box. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, such memories. Thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Will. For any of you out there who have ever worked in a pizza place or any kind of a restaurant or eatery, you kind of know what we're talking about here. All the more reason why, you know, don't go out to eat, right? Anyway, 
So, you know, this is fascinating. So were you exposed to NLP and hypnosis more first or were you exposed? Did you kind of, you know, did you go back to school and, and get your degrees and as you were doing that were exposed and then you learned to integrate it? Well, actually, I was blessed because I, I stumbled across the NLP and the hypnosis. And back in the early 80s, it was easier to find NLP than hypnosis training. And again, this predates the internet, so you just couldn't Google stuff, right? And so, you know, they were starting to be NLP trainings all over. Tony Robbins was just taking off, all that kind of stuff, right? And so I, I did the NLP, and then uh, I remember the hypnosis, then I found some hypnosis trainings. Then I started studying psychology, which kind of was an eye-opening experience, because half the time I'd sit there in a psych class going, well, this is stupid. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's like, oh my this God. does not work. Systematic desensitization. Oh, my gosh. Why? I could do a phobia technique in five minutes and get rid of it, not six months of one, you know, but it, it was it was interesting. Right. Yes. Yeah. I did the same thing in the early 80s. I was in college and I was looking at becoming a clinical psychologist and the field was going through a massive amount of flux at the time. I think we still had the DSM-3, which for those of you that don't know, is our diagnostic manual. It's, a, it's what's called our, our nomenclature, our languaging for how to diagnose people. And back then, homosexuality was still in this DSM as a disorder. And I'm sitting in, a, in an abnormal psych class and I'm looking around at the professor and most of you know, my fellow students and I'm thinking, you people are all crazy. Like what I was seeing in, in this diagnostic manual back then were what I considered to be like idiosyncratic habits or you know, different challenges, not disorders, right? Not things that we were going to label people with. And so I got out of it for a while uh, I didn't go back to it for, for years. I eventually finished, but I, I, at the time, I just couldn't handle the flux of the, the field. And so I could see, I, you know, you all can't see, but you'll see Dr. Will's picture when, you know, the episode is aired. I encourage you, and I will give you his information, and he will say it as well, but I encourage you to go to his website and, and learn more about his amazing work. But looking at Dr. Will, I could see him sitting in psych classes. And this was what, like the 80s? The early 80s? Yeah, 80, early, or late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I could see him sitting in classes like, this is bullshit. This is stupid. This is crazy. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to have Dr. Will on is because he's just, he's like we are, real, down-to-earth, raw unfiltered, you know, like th this is life. I mean, you can't work in addictions and have these errors, you know? Well, yeah. And it's like, I was lucky. One of my, uh, the guy that did a lot of my clinical internships was one of the first psychologists and it licensed in Indiana. And he would talk about that. He always believed that when they started uh, uh, putting labels on, like you said, these things, because he really got started after he was a soldier in World War II, went back to school and, and was in the VA system, because everybody forgets the VA still trains more psychologists than any other place in the world. But he goes, before they had the DSM, you know, they we treated people like human beings, not syndromes. And even this was like early 90s. He says, eventually, everything 
will be a clinical diagnosis. I know. Isn't that scary? You know, I mean, a medical or, cl- I mean, like restless leg syndrome. And I'm not making fun of it, but no. after a while, you're like, and there was a commercial was like about sweating, you know, and there's a disorder for it. And then they ain't supposed to have a drug for it. And my one friend that's a doctor goes, I would never give that damn drug. Because it shut, it stops you from sweating. That's not healthy. <laughs> exactly. I know. I and I think that's what I was doing when I was sitting in these classes and in that abnormal psych class. And here's this professor talking about abnormal psychology, and it's like, are you kidding me? That's just you're labeling these things that are normal behavior, and now we're classifying and lumping people into these categories, and it's it they become that. Well, and it's like lately I've been, my current fascination is is with shame. Mm, mm-hmm. But what's interesting, when you start talking about shame, it's a word. It's a nomenclature, right? It's just a word. But everybody's going to, if I say shame, everybody has a whole different experience. But if I start talking about like, how does it feel when you're, when you feel unworthy? You hit it when you're like unworthy. Do you sabotage yourself, whether it's in a weight program or an exercise pro or a relationship or your career, how many people get right to here and I'm, and then blow it up. And then they have this, it's that feeling of unworthiness. It's a felt sense, right? But when we use a word, it, it's like a diagnosis. It takes away everything. That's been a big part of this program, this podcast. Every episode is the language that we use because it is so reinforcing either from a positive or negative perspective on one, how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we move through the world. Yeah, it's, you know, and I've always had an incredible soft spot in my heart for vets. I I did an internship at the VA myself, right? And addictions, you know, is such an important, look, I mean, so many of us are, and I say us, I'm a, I'm a smoker, right? So I, I, my addiction is no different than if I was shooting up heroin. It's just my method of delivery and my method of quote unquote acceptance, my method of availability and how I can access it is very different. When I worked at a prison, I remember the guys asking me, they wanted to know two things. Was I in recovery? And had I ever been in prison? And those were two issues that I would never talk about because I didn't want, it could never be about me, right? It needed to be focused on them. But they would be really curious. And I would say at the time you could smoke in prisons and and things like that. And so at break time, they would see me go out and have a cigarette and I would tell them, do you think that my addiction is any less than yours? That if I'm jonesing for a nicotine hit and I have no money, no cigarettes and no way to get any, do you think that my addiction is any less to the point where I will go and search and hunt for whatever butt I can find, no matter where it came from, just to feed my addiction if I really need that? It's we are addicted. And now with the internet and social media, it's even scarier, right? So I want to I wanna dive a little more into when you got into the field and addictions became more of a passion for you. Were you kind of focusing on alcoholism because that had been your experience or did you find that you were just working in all addictions, what led you kind of down the path to where you're specializing now, I guess, is what I'm really asking. Well, when I first hung out a shingle, as they say, I had a clinical hypnosis practice, I called it, right? Uh-huh. And probably about 50% of my clients were weight loss clients, right? 
And because from a business standpoint, you know, I had a business mentor that says, pick the low hanging fruit first. Don't reach for the top of the tree. Right. 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 And, and it was interesting. I'm, I'm dealing with pe- people at that point, probably 65, 70% women with weight issues. And, you know, I was doing the hypnosis and doing this and that. And I, I basically figured out it's exactly like working with alcohol or drugs, except it was the food. And many people would say, oh, I have an addiction to, you know, a food addiction. And I'm like, no, much like, you know, in, the, in, in, in alcohol and drugs, they would always say the alcohol is a symptom of an underlying problem. Right. 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 Bottles are but a symptom is what they would say. Right. Or, or syringes are a symptom if you're into drugs. And, and so I'm seeing that with people with a weight issue. And I figured out it was the eating that was the problem you know, and everything that went with the eating. And so I began to approach it much more like a clinical addiction or what we would call an addiction. But the difference would be, and this ties in when we talk about social media a little bit, you know, I haven't had a drink in almost 36 years. I, I could live the rest of my life, never have a drink, never smoke a cigarette, you know, never gamble, mm-hmm. you know, never watch porn, uh, never have sex if sex is an addiction or as I joke around or get married, either one kind of, <laughs> kind of, Kind of puts a kibosh on some of that stuff, but 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 food you got to eat. You got to eat at least once or twice a day, right? So it was like hmm, that was interesting. That made me go back and look at addictions differently because for the first ten years I was a hardcore. This is what you do: you dry them out, you get them clean, you throw them in AA, and if it didn't work, do it harder. Yeah, right. right. It was. A lot of people would argue uh, one of the underlying symptoms of, of addictions is shame. So what are we going to do? We're going to shame them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so backwards. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm like, hmm, why doesn't this work? So then I started talking to like as many people as I could find that sobered up or got off alcohol or drugs with or without the 12-step program, you know, and, and I began to find there was this basically they reinvented who they were. Now the 12 steps will do it. Psychotherapy will do it. Religion will do it. I was just having a conversation the way I end up talking with everybody, guy that was delivering something to my house. And he found out what I did. We start talking. He says, well, I haven't had a drink in four years because he had a heart attack at like 32 and his liver was shutting down. And I'm like, oh, do you go to meetings? He goes, no, but that woke me up and he made some other changes. And I'm like, he was different. So it made me pull back from the addiction world and go, you know, why is what we're doing not working. Right. Right. I still think the 12 step works for a certain subgroup. It may not work for everybody, you know, and, and I would use the medical analogy where if you came to me, if I was a medical doctor and you had a sinus infection and I give you amoxicillin and you call me up the next couple of days later and go, doc, it's no better. Am I going to say, take more amoxicillin? No, I'm probably going to say, they're probably going to say, put that or throw that away. And here, I'm going to give you some penicillin or a Z pack or whatever the current treatment. They're going to do something different only in the 12 step. And they, and that took over the whole treatment world, as you know. Yes. They had no other answer. Thank you for saying this, Doc, because you are the first colleague, the first person who's in the field, who has specialized in addictions, who speaks like that. I thought I was the lone freak. I'm not saying I'm that unique or different. I'm sure there are many out there who think like we do, but I'm just me and I just, I'm out there and I will speak my truth. But I have also been careful in speaking that truth around, you know, colleagues at different times. I, I, I 
I, I speak it, but I'm still cautious of kind of where they're coming from because my whole philosophy has always been that addiction is nothing more than a behavioral displacement for underlying set of emotional conflicts. And that if we label them and we put them in this category, they become that. And so 12 steps are important in any realm, but they're not the end all be all. And they're good for a subset and they're good to get you started. But what I found was so many dry drunks which means for those of you that don't know, they've quit drinking, but they're really still alcoholics in the sense of all their other thoughts and behaviors are still tied into that. They're just actually not drinking or someone who's not doing the drug or the other behavior, right? And they run a really high risk of relapsing and going back to that behavior. Like you said, when you and your first wife divorced, you had been clean and sober for, you said, what, a year and a half? Mm-hmm. And then yep. you guys divorced. And so some of those pieces were still in play. And now you've dealt with them, right? You know, way early on. But so many people in this realm don't think like that. And I think that's why it's not working. That's why what you're doing is so exciting to me. Well, it's like, I like the 12 step programs personally. It fits me. But after I started thinking about it, and I said, okay, now think like a scientist, go back and do some data gathering. And the people, if you were a bar drinker, if you were the life of the party and you're gargarious and outgoing, you're probably going to like AA. Right. If you're, a, if you're more of an introvert, it's, it's like pulling freaking teeth to go to an AA meeting. Right. Yeah. Right. They're forcing you to do something that you needed drinks to do before. Right. And so it's like, hmm. So, you know, and that's why you go to AA meetings and it's, you know, the same guys that were the party at leading the bar are now leading the meeting a few years later, right? But like you said, a lot of people don't handle the underlying issues. I just had an experience I thought was funny because sometimes I'm a dick. And, um, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm, I'm a member of this group. And I said, we're trying to appeal to young people and new people in in recovery. I said, and it was his idea. I said, great, let's do, we'll call it a candlelight meeting for the Friday night meeting, right? Uh Uh-huh. And so I went and bought the candles, right? And, and so last night, in fact, was our first candlelight meeting. So since they did all the readings, we turned most of the lights off, not all, and we had electric candles, right? And it was kind of fun to do. And part of me, the scientists in me sitting back going, this is going to be interesting. And there was a few, like you say, these old timers who are so dry, they're about to spontaneously combust, right? <laughs> But they're miserable. They right. hated it. And yeah. they're coming up to me and they're like, I don't know if this is right. And I'm like, well, technically, I don't care what you think. Yeah. You know, this is a group conscious. We're doing what we're doing. And plus, we're not appealing to the guys that's been sober 30 years. I'm trying to get the kids in, the kids, <laughs> you know, 28 years, you know, those guys. And so, like you say, it's like, are they flexible? And that's the other problem with, with any kind of like program like the 12 steps long term, unless you're lucky enough to hang out with people that make you grow. I use the martial arts analogy because that's my other little hobby. You know, are you a martial artist that still trains? Do you still, do you still practice? Do you still fight? Do you still do this? Or do you stand around with your hands in your belt going, yeah, I'm a fourth degree black belt, <sighs> you know, and you can't, you can't even touch your damn toes. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. 
I love it. And, and I love your act. I just like everybody, you, you, you gotta, you gotta meet Dr. Will. I'm telling you, you just, he's, he's an amazing, fun, down to earth, straightforward guy. Like he even uses voices the way I use voice. Like, I just love this guy. Okay. So anyway, moving on. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So you're doing this work, you're using NLP, you're using hypnosis, you're seeing these amazing results with, you know, a lot of women who had come to you with, you know, weight, weight issues. What did you find then over time was kind of like the sweet spot where they were really able to move through their addiction? Did you find that it was a particular like way or technique that you worked with them? Was it a particular thing that they kind of came to an awareness of within themselves? Like, did you find anything like that? Well, yeah. One of the things that I stole pretty early from the 12 steps and I, I would do in like even a weight loss program, I'd want the people to do like a fourth in, in 12 step world is called the fourth step, a searching and fearless moral inventory. And it wasn't what you did. That's irrelevant. You know, you don't have to give me the details. Did you lie? Did you cheat? Did you steal? And what was the cause of it? What drove it? What would, and I reframed it is what was your rationalization? You know, you cheated on your husband. What was your rationalization? He cheated on you. Okay, one does not equal the other. I mean, we know that intellectually. So what, what was going on underneath it? My big thing is felt sense. What did you feel? Where did you feel it? And, you know, a lot of it, and it keeps coming back, the feelings of unworthiness, of shame, of, of unhealthy guilt. There's healthy guilt, but then there's unhealthy guilt. And again, the words mean nothing, but you know, what's that feeling? I call it the empty heart. If you have a, if you have an empty heart, you're going to try to fill it with alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, porn, social media, you know, until you learn how to, to open your heart so you can truly connect, you know, and that's when I see people that really recover and you've seen it, it, whether it's with the 12 steps or with therapy or with religion, I don't care what it is. They literally, to use the Christian terminology, they're born again. Yeah. They create a new them. I've seen people go to a Tony Robbins seminar and come back different people, you know? And again, one of my, you know, one of my wake up moments is there's a lot of ways to get there. Exactly. I used to think, well, it should be this way or that way. You know, a lot of people would make fun of, oh, what does people do? Well, they just go to this Tony Robbins seminar, you know, for a week, but I've seen it literally change people's lives. There's no one way. There's, there's, you know, your way, my way, and, and all the other ways. It's just a different way. It's not the best way or the right way. And, And that's the thing that, you know, I'm sure you've seen it a gazillion times that, our clients and friends and family that we know, or people, acquaintances that we meet, you know, they get stuck in these kind of patterns of behavior and thought. They believe that's who they are. They get tied to that story. They repeat the story over and over with the language in their head. And maybe they continue to have experiences that kind of, you know, maybe reinforce that a little, but then they really struggle with disassociating themselves from that story and recognizing they have the power to reinvent themselves, to become who they feel they're meant to be or choose to be without all that past stuff. Like, so fucking what if you committed a crime when you were 22? So what if you lied and cheated and stole and you felt like you hurt somebody or you this or you were a victim of that? 
Well, and, and, and lately I've been really fascinated because, you know, our brain, the way our brains operate is so fascinating. I just think it's cool. But what now psychology is coming around that you have these autonomic, automatic responses, right? That you can't override. It goes back to survival. Underneath it all, your brain's only job is to keep your ass alive. Thank right? you. Yes. And, then it's, and then its job is to find food and to get laid. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what your brain, no, really. I mean, that's, that's what propagates the species as yeah, they say, yeah. right? And only humans overthink all that shit, right? right. But, you know, if, if, and we have a social mechanism now that they know is genetic, which is in, in all mammals, that if you're shunned, it's a death sentence. Right? If you're thrown out of your pack, if you're a dog, it's, that's why they, your dogs freak out if you treat them bad because they're going to die. They know they're going to die. Right. right? right. And, and so that's why the, whether you want to call it shame or, or that, you know, when you, when, when you, there's the threat that you're going to be thrown out of your family or your group or your tribe, it's terrifying and you'll begin to shut down. Right. Yeah. And so again, our brains, especially when we're forming, when we're kids, you know, you know, it's it's like they say about our parents. Everybody's guilty, but it's not their fault because they didn't know any better. So you know, they'll 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 do things, and you begin to get these imprints that is now subconscious that you cannot override, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that's again why you always hear people in addictions talk about, you know, uh, they they felt hollow inside. You know, I had a hole in my soul. You know, and then the first time they had a drink, it felt good. Or the first time they got high, it felt good. Or get laid or watch porn. Whatever their addiction is, it was a way to fill that. And so then it, then it becomes a survival mechanism. And, you know, and, and it gets deeper and deeper. And I just find it fascinating. And what started it all lately was talking about why the children of rich people stay rich generally. Huh. Right? Yeah. And it has to it has to do with the way they're brought up around money. Are they taught how to handle money? Are they taught no, it's their belief sets. They didn't shun money. They maybe because their parents had money, so there was no shame about it, you know. And it's just this, you know, it's this fascinating thing. And then I step back and I look at society and how they judge and do this. Like there's this thing, I always see it on the internet, and I always start fights when they say, you know, the way to get rich is live like you're poor. Really successful rich people live like they're poor. And I always post pictures of million dollar yachts, you know, <laughs> how, how some of the, you know, you know, they, they shit on gold toilets. I yeah. mean, they have, they have five airplanes, 20. Yes. Yes. They're, they're suffering. They're suffering. Yeah. No, they're really living like they're poor. That's a rationalization of a poor person. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That is going to justify it. But then what's scary, their kids are going to pick that up and they're never going to feel worthy to have the brand new car they really want. They're never going to feel worthy to have. And like you said, you win an award. And I, I'm, I kind of I'm always working on this. My, my usual thing is, you know, I wouldn't join a group that would allow a guy like me to join. Really? <laughs> you know, it's like I win an award. My first thing is, wow. Anybody can win this. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that kind of fatalistic, you know. Yeah, that, it's like, it, yeah. It's, 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 you know, and it goes back to that. And again, when you feel shamed or shunned or that, when, you know, the general human response is to try to disappear. Right. You yeah. know, yeah. and so you'll pull in, you'll do that. So you'll have to downplay, you know. Sure. And, and again, then people will rationalize it. Well, well, you don't want to be 
you know, too gargarious and outgoing and blow your own horn. I mean, heaven forbid, no, we know that doesn't work. Like it only gets you places like 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, <laughs> or, or the Senate or, you know, or the, you know, the boardrooms. Oh you know? God. Yes. <laughs> okay. So let me, oh, this is so fun. So let me ask, um, so in seeing that then through the years and understanding this, you know, how they can justify and rationalize and move away when they start to feel too seen or too vulnerable or, or, or too exposed. Do you believe then that people can overcome any addiction? And, and if you, well, answer that first, because I have another question behind that. Yeah. Yeah. If they're willing to, to, to figure out what's driving it, what's holding it up. It's a, you know, if there's a, if there's a sense what's underneath it, that's supporting it. Yeah. If you're willing to look at that and change those things, then you can overcome just about anything. Just about anything. And so what do you think is the biggest thing then that holds people back from beating that addiction? If they are willing and aware of what's underneath, do you find that once they have that awareness or they're willing at least to kind of look at that, do you find then that they reach a place where they get to a place in their kind of recovery and movement through it and in it that then they kind of go, no, and they kind of step back into their addiction again? Yeah, I think that's the biggest part. You know, they, they do that. And, and again, you know, as my dear, dear friend, Tony Robbins would say, I kind of ad lib what he says, which is you may not rise to the level of your dreams, but you'll always fall to the level of your peers. Right. So begin as social creatures, who are we hanging around with? Right. And are they growing? Are they doing this? So, so again, one of the things I did notice with people that really make those changes in their lives, especially in addictions or behavior changes, they start hanging around with a different set of people. Right. And if you want to be a high achiever, you need to hang around with high achieving people. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, we were just talking about business groups. Why do people go to these things? You know, uh, well, part of it is to hopefully you get around people that are going to hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I have a friend who was in um, spec ops, right? And uh, in the military, in the Navy. So you could put together he's a SEAL, right? And he goes, he's, he's pretty much done being an operator. He got hurt, so he couldn't be an operator. And, and he ended up having to retire early because he, he goes, I couldn't go back in the regular Navy. And, and, and everybody's like, well, why not? You know, you've been the SEAL, you're an E7, you've got it, you basically, excuse my language, you got a dick, that, that. He goes, because I would just strangle every one of these lazy son of a bitches. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, and they're not holding themselves accountable. Right. You know, and there's a reason why, you know, again, going to, like you say, sons, sons of wealthy people or whatever, or look at the phenomenon now of the sons and daughters of movie stars that are becoming movie stars. Yes, they're getting a, some boosts and all that, but they can handle celebrity. Right. They've been around they grow, it. They grew up with it. Yeah. You know? So if you grow up with it, you're able to handle it. Those of us that, that didn't, suddenly you know, people are asking your autograph and taking your picture. That might freak you out. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think then is the fastest way to overcome an addiction? Based on, because, you know, so I, you're using, it sounds like you use a lot of NLP techniques and hypnosis techniques in your addictions work with people, regardless of their addiction and why they come to you, right? So what is the fastest way to kind of overcome an addiction then? 
Well, I, I think first you have to get in and figure out what's driving it, you know, because sure. usually the first thing people always go, you know, to me, doc, you know, part of me really wants to quit drinking drug, whatever it is. Part of me really wants to do it, but part of me likes it. Right. Right. Or a big one. Nobody wants to look at very is, you know, part of me wants to quit drinking, but part of me is afraid I'll never have fun again. This is especially true if they're young, you know, it's like, you know, what am I going to be doing? Going, knocking on doors, going, have you heard about Jesus Christ, our Lord? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, they're terrified. Right? Yes. Especially if you've, if you've anchored that the only way to have fun is drinking or drugging or whatever. Right. And so, first of all, you know, I attack it that way. You start getting and and if it's, if it's a light addiction, almost if once you get rid of that conflict, then things get easier. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, one of my come to Jesus moments in my own head was, hmm, not everybody has to recover the way I did. Ah, yes. You know, and maybe they're not that bad. Right. And whatever works for them. And so but a part of it is restructuring that part, if not your whole personality, that part of your personality that needed the addiction to survive. Okay. So. Where does, because this is such a big one, right? Where does social media and the internet come into play now? Because this is such a prevalent part of our world day to day, even for us old folks, right? Okay, so I'm not calling you old, Dr. Will, but you know, we are older, we are of a different generation. He and I, and I'm speaking for you because you know, you're a bit older than I. And I'm 55, and I did not grow up with a computer. I did not grow up with a cell phone or a smartphone and the internet at my fingertips. Shit, that it wasn't even around until, damn, when I think I got my first computer in the late 80s, and I just wrote a couple of documents on it and played maybe a free cell game or some shit. And yeah. had the dot matrix printer. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with the, with, yes. And the printer that had um, the holes, the, all the yeah, paper yeah. had the holes on the end, right? I know you guys don't know what I'm, some of you don't know what I'm t we're talking about here, but here's the, here's the olden days of when I walked a mile in my shoes in the snow. I mean, with no shoes on in the snow, I hated that when my parents did that, right? Now that's exactly what, what I'm doing here, right? But in in the earlier parts of the internet, it wasn't so prevalent for people like me because it was I saw it as a tool. But for those of you who have grown up on it, even from maybe not birth, but a much younger age, it has become a normal part of your daily existence. And to be honest, at 55 even, it's become something I check multiple times a day. I check my phone my e you know, for email, text messages, Facebook, the things like that. So my God, I can only imagine the kind of level of addiction and problem that this is causing for people. What have been the biggest things you've seen and how does your work really kind of dive in now in the social media and internet addiction world? Well, first of all, it shows how quickly we adapt you know, one-on-one, -on -one. not, not evolutionary, but personally, because like you said, it's a rather new phenomenon, but it would be hard to imagine life without it. And everyone, you know, and it's funny, people will post on social media, wouldn't it be nice not to have this social media? And I'm yeah. like, well, why are you putting it on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> but it's become that. And, and, and actually, some of the biggest problems are people over 50. Really? You know? Yes. 
because of a lot of reasons. But if you were going to design, some neurologist said, if he was going to design the perfect addictive mechanism, right? Things like, you know, we can look at oxycodone or meth or whatever. All of these are very strong. He would argue it's still, it's this thing. Your social, I'm picking up my cell phone. Wow. It's this. Wow. Instantaneous feedback. Sure. Yeah. And yet you're, you're, you're engaged, but with very little risk. Right. Right. And it's replaced real human connection. I mean, the list goes on and you get instant dopamine rushes. If you post something and you look and you got like, you know, 30 comments and a hundred likes or little hearts or whatever, depending on what media you're on. Right. You go, yeah, I'm the man. People love me. Fuck. They don't even know who you are, but you know, uh, but it's, <laughs> they liked it, and loved your post. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's replaced all that. Right. And to be honest with you, I think, well, I would argue that they're bringing in some very good people to help make it even more addictive, right? Because their job, their job is to keep you online. You know, the guy that helped develop, you ever see a really cool thing? You go, that sounds interesting. And you click on it, like what happened to the stars of the 70s or something? And you click on it and you see one that is click more. And, you know, and it's, my wife calls it going down the rabbit hole. And now 20 minutes later, you're like reading these other articles, right? That was brilliant use of, you know, keeping you engaged, right? And every page you go to, they make money, right? Because, you know, those of us that have advertised on social media or the internet knows that you pay for that. So it's, it, 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 it's brilliant. But at the same time, I, like I said earlier, I can live the rest of my life, never, you know, never drink, never do drugs, all that other stuff. But, and then some people would say, well, just get off all social media get off all social media. And this actually, and how I end up doing things is a guy, I know he got off all social media, no internet, no, you know, he'd only carry an old flip phone and would only, you know, it was like, whatever. Right. I'm like, okay, cool. Cause he, he said it was eating his life up. But then one day we're talking and he goes, he wanted to start a business. And everybody's like, that'd be great. And he goes, yeah. And I got to figure this. I said, well, First of all, you got to get a website. You got to get social media presence. You got to get your. You got to get this shit cooking. And somebody, of course, a couple of the old people. No, he could build it by word of mouth. And I'm like, bullshit. He's got to have a website. He's got to have social media presence. You know, he wants to start a, a, a kind of a service related business. And he goes, and he asked me. He goes, well, how do I do that and not go down the rabbit hole? Yeah. And uh, honestly, I went beats the fuck out of me. I I have to think about it. I never. You know, and then it, to me, it's an addiction more like food for some people, right? And then, you know, sometimes God hits me in the head. So a couple of days later, as I'm thinking about it, I'm sitting here and I'm doing some work and a guy came to work on my air conditioner. And afterwards he goes, hey, doc, uh, do you mind if we take a picture and, you know, you give me a quote and we put it, they put it on their Facebook page, right? And I went, the business guy, I mean, he goes, shit, that's smart, that's very smart because I'm, I'm happy. He just fixed my air conditioner. It's Florida. So I'm happy. Right. And, and I happily give him a testimonial. Right. So he took a picture, you know, Hey, click, click, you know, and here's so-and-so saying, you know, great job for whatever the, the air conditioning company was. Right. And so I sat back after he left, I go, that's one of the keys. Cause he has to do that for work. Uh-huh. Just like you or I, if you're going to have a business in this day and age, you, unless you're a millionaire and you can totally hire out everything you do, you've got to engage on social media. You've got to post on Facebook. You've got to do this. You've got to write some emails, right? Or maybe if you have a job, your boss may require you to do this kind of stuff. You know, how many people only get their schedules via email? 
you know? My daughter was so happy when she finally got her, uh, she's a, a computer security expert, right? And she now got her job where it's 95% at home. So she's online all day, right? If she can't, and she tells me, dad, if I can't self-regulate, I'm not going to keep this job. And so I'm like, ah, so it's more like food. You can't do a total like just go into AA and never drink again. I mean, I suppose you could, but unless you're retired, you know, or even if you got a family, maybe your families, that's the way they communicate with you is through Facebook. So it's a, it's a, it's a new frontier, you know? So I started working with people with social media addiction and, and develop a program and working on that because it's, it's new and it's different, you know? And again, you can't take what worked over there and think it will work here. Exactly. And because it is like food, we do live in an age you can denounce online, the online world, the internet, social media. You can be exactly like you were saying, I'm going to give it all up and that's it no more. But chances are high you're not giving up your phone. Chances are high you have a smartphone and you don't still have one of the old flip phones because who knows if those even work anymore with the way things have progressed in the technology. So chances are most of us have a smartphone. And that means that even if it's just to, to talk to aging parents or to our children or to our grandchildren or to find directions or I'm lost or I need help because my tire you know, blew out, the likelihood is that we're connected to the internet and social media in some way. And so to say, that's it, I'm totally giving it up, is like you said, just like, that's it, I'm never going to eat food again. We're not going to function very well. So I can totally see the connection there with food and, and the tie-in and how hard that is. So do you then, when you work with people, it's about helping them learn those healthy boundaries for themselves so that they don't go down those rabbit holes and kind of get sucked into their addictive process with it, but they still can be connected as they need to be. Yeah. And, and one of the things seems to work the best is see it as a tool. Okay. You know, think that, think that you're a police officer, right? When he's at work, he has weapons on him. He has his gun. He has his taser. He may have two guns. A lot of, you know, it's just the way they, it's what they, and a shotgun in the trunk. I mean, that's my friends that are cops. That's what they have. Many of them, when they're off duty, you know, they've got a very small revolver they carry. That's it. And they never want to use it. Right. When they're, you know, and I'm like, what if you begin to think of it this way? This is the tool I have. Personally, I've been doing it. This is for my business. Yeah. Right. And, and if it's for my personal thing, it's in a certain way. I, you know, and that, you know, you wouldn't want that cop pulling his gun out every three minutes. Sure. Right. So what if you look at it that way? That's one refrain that some people have used. And again, much like food, it's like, what do I need just to survive? You know, uh, 2000 calories is more than enough. Right. So, you know, there's some people that do an allotment thing, but I like that. It's more like food. It's like, what do I need to survive? And, and what, what am I using it for? I like that because I, if you think of food as a tool then too, like I need this for fuel, I need this for energy, I need this to survive from a physical perspective. So what am I taking this cupcake for? Am I shoving it in my face because it's comforting? Am I shoving it in my face because 
I need some of the nutrients in it, which we're not going to get into whether that's, you know, a good, bad, right, wrong thing, right, to each their own. But I mean, if we were to ask ourselves those questions, that's, that's beautiful, right? Like, what am I using this for? This is a tool. I think that is phenomenal. And I know that I will start asking myself that question when it comes to food, when it comes to being on the internet and social media, just because I absolutely have been guilty of falling down the rabbit hole many times. Oh, yeah. You know, and like since, we all do. In some ways, it's a godsend. Sure. It really is. And the other, and the, and, but without totally destroying it, on the upside, it's opened up this whole world. If you're into self-development, you got to thank the internet because it's opened up people to realize that they're not alone. Whatever kink you got, somebody on the internet's got that kink. Yeah. Right? Right. And that, and I heard a guy give a talk on that, you know, that most of us don't even know how weird people really are. <laughs> <laughs> now until we kind of do, right? Until, until you get on the internet and you <laughs> find out, Wow, but if you think whatever, if if you're in whatever, let's say, if you're in podunk, like you mentioned it earlier, just think about what we did to a whole generation of of gay men and women back in the '60s and '70s. You're mentally ill. This is not normal. And if you grew up in like you know podunk Iowa or or podunk Mississippi, you weren't in New York City or San Francisco. You had no people that like would say this is normal, right? And this is why once these things happen, right, and take off. You could be a young gay man in some small town in Mississippi. As long as you got the internet, you might go, wow, I'm not alone. Right, exactly. There's, there's millions like me. I know for a lot of clients in, in the past who you know, were really dealing with kind of severe anxiety and severe depressive thoughts and feelings, that they would often feel so super isolated and like they were the only one. And periodically I see people now posting on, you know, the internet things like, gosh, I'm just, I'm, I'm under so much anxiety right now and I'm so stressed or I, I'm feeling so depressed. And then the outpouring that, that happens like, wow, you know, you're so loved and you're so awesome and you're amazing. And, you know, you know, gosh, I, I wish you didn't feel that way because I think you're pretty special. And then you see that person who, you know, regardless of why they did it, maybe they need, they just need that encouragement and that connection. And, and maybe they're being manipulative and maybe not. Maybe they're just really reaching out because they're saying, I'm feeling incredibly alone. So the internet and social media has a beautiful place. I think we absolutely though, like you said, can get caught going down that rabbit hole. And before we know it, what was supposed to be 20 minutes or 30 minutes of this or that becomes ours. And then our life starts to be inhibited by some of those behaviors. Well, as we're coming to the end here, Dr. Will, it's been such an amazing and fascinating conversation. What would be a, a kind of a, what I term a kick your butts kind of experience that you had besides your alcoholism and your decision to, to go into recovery and, and, you know, understand your addiction, what would be a kick your butts kind of moment that you experienced that you really struggled with? Well, one would be, I was sober for about a year. And when I first got sober, I said, I'm never going to do theater again. Cause I was also, I was still blaming theater. You know, there's a crazy theater people, the parties and this and that. Right. And, and so I'm like, I'm never going to do theater again. Okay, fine. And then, but then I like it. I like performing. I like being in a play. I like whatever. And I remember thinking, you know, and talking to some people about, yeah, but you know, I don't think I could do it. And I remember there was a, a mentor of mine who just said, 
well, if it's meant to be, it'll be. Uh-huh. He goes, quit worrying about it. And then, and I said, okay. And this is where I, I said a couple deep prayers, did some meditating, which was new to me at the time. And said, so we'll see what happens. A couple days later, I'm at work. It was just the first job I could get when I sobered up again, which was delivering medical equipment. And I was in the office and I get a phone call. And I'm like, that's weird. And they're like, yeah, is this, you know, Will Horton? I said, yeah. He said, you're, you're, you're the actor, right? I said, well, I used to act. And they said, if you're in the theater, this will make sense. You got the blonde hair and the blue eyes. Yeah. Are you still in pretty good shape? Yeah. Hey, we got a part for you. Uh-huh. Right. 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 And I'm like, because any other conversation, that would be weird. But in theater, you're like, yeah, okay. No, yeah. And, that's and I'm like, I'm like, well, how did you find out about me? And he couldn't remember. Ah. And I'm like, he goes, I don't know, but I got your name from. So, so I met with them and I ended up doing the show and the, and the people there didn't party. And then what I really, the kick the butt moment was I'm sitting around looking around and I'm going like, you know what? I was the fucking problem. Mm. I was the troublemaker in the theater. I was the guy bringing the case of beer to rehearsal or the gallon of wine. Not everybody else. Most actors took it very serious, right? In this group, they were kind of almost overly serious actors, but it was fun to be around, right? And then it just, it, it just took off from there. And that's where my, my thing was to pray, to meditate, and to trust. And to realize, you know, some, some of the problems in my life, I'm the problem. If I get me out of the way, magic can happen. So that was the kind of the kick button. Oh, gosh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So what then would be a kind of kick your butts piece of advice from your experience and your expertise that you would want to offer up those that are listening? One would be, you know, to use the Shakespeare quote, because I always screw up the Bible quote but uh, is uh, nothing is neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, right? Ah, yeah. So an experience is just an experience. It's how we label that experience means everything. And unfortunately, so my kick the butt thing would be, don't pre-label an experience before you have it. I have love Have the that. experience first and then decide, did I like it? Did I not like it? You know, because we let ourselves down. I remember somebody, they finally got to go to like Universal and they hated it. And it was because they thought it was going to be this, they put too much pressure on it. You know, it was never going to live up to it. Right. And again, it's that way about everything. And experience is just an experience. That's right. Yes. You know, and it's neither good nor bad. So sometimes if you just have the experience and then go afterwards and you label it, you know, and that's the gift we have as an adult. Unfortunately, I wish we could teach that to kids. You know, sometimes you have a good mentor say, just try it. If you like it, do it. If you don't like it, I remember one of, there was a friend of mine, his, his dad was good at that because we tried out for the Little League team. And he was the only adult male I ever heard told his son, look, if you like it, keep doing it. If you don't like it, quit. Most of us are taught, if you don't like it, you're going to do it till you're done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to stick out the season. We you know? force, yes, we force those things. Oh my God. And that ties into something that you had said, not during the show, but in a conversation before. And there's a, there's a form for you all. So you don't think I'm just pulling shit out of my ass here. There's a form that all of my guests fill out prior to coming on the show. And Dr. Will, you had said this quote, and this ties in so perfectly to this that any behavior that stops you from living the life you want can be changed. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is that 
we can decide the experience we have. And if we don't like the experience, we can change the meaning and we can change the behavior. So if we find that there is behavior that is inhibiting us, stopping us, holding us back, causing negative consequences in our life, or whatever it might be, we have the power to change that so that we can live the life that we want. I love that. Well, how would people come to find out more about you and like, what's a way for them to get in touch with you? Or I understand that you have a, um, a beautiful ebook on addictions that you would like to give to the audience for free, right? Right, right. And the easiest way to get that ebook, you could get it for free if you go to AASOL, that's just AASOLVED.com. And there's, there's a way to get the book in there. Or if you just shoot an email to Dr. Will Horton, D-R-W-I-L-L-H-O-R-T-O-N at gmail.com and let me know you want the ebook, I'll, I'll shoot that right out to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Will. And again, that's www.aasolved, for David, .com, which stands for All Addiction Solved. Isn't that cool? A-A- solved all addiction solved i think that's so cool dr will go to www.aasolved.com or email dr will at dr will horton at gmail.com and all of this will be in the show notes with links so that you can directly connect with dr will dr will it's been such an honor and a pleasure having you here is there any final thoughts for the audience that you'd like to offer up today well, I always like to close with, I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to remember who I took the quote from, but I'll just say it, which is, most people fail not because they aim too high, but they aim too low and they hit it. Yes. And so aim high, you know, reach for the stars because, you know, if you, if you, if you fly too, you know, some people say don't fly too high to the sun, your wings will burn. But if you fly too low, you end up crashing. Yes. So it's better to fly high. That's so beautiful. And to leave you all with that, again, thank you so much, Dr. Will Horton, for being here with us today in the Kick Your Butt house. I honor you. I adore you. And I'm so excited for the work that you're doing. And please, everybody, go out and go to www.aasolve.com. Get Dr. Will's free ebook on addictions. Whether you think you have an addiction or not, I can guarantee you that all of us have engaged in behaviors that can be or are addictive in nature. And maybe it didn't cause the level of negative consequence for us as someone else who's caught in kind of that very addictive pattern, but it definitely has inhibited us at various times. I can assure you of that. And all of that information can be helpful. Join me at kickyourbots.com and drop me a message, or better yet, go to facebook.com forward slash kickyourbots and join the community there where we are growing together to help one another get out of the butts and the excuses and the limits and the boundaries that we place on ourselves. For now, I hope you have an amazing week. I hope you stay safe and peaceful and go kick your butts to the curb. I shall see you next week. Ciao for now. You've been listening to Kick Your Butts, where sitting on your butts is no longer an option. 
figuratively and literally. To access the show notes and important links from today's episode, please visit kickyourbutts.com. While you're there, please share your Kick Your Butt story by clicking the Start Recording button. It might just be included in a future episode. Thanks for listening today. Now get out there and kick those butts to the curb.